I've got bad news and worse news and even worse news. Uh, the bad news is that our guest speaker this morning, Amy Org Ewing, who was supposed to come talk with us about the B-I-B-L-E, which is uh, the series that we're in right now, called in sick on Tuesday. Uh, that means that she's probably pretty sick. My travel schedule is not nearly as rigorous as hers is. I do about a dozen outside speaking engagements every year. So for me to call in sick for a weekend on the Tuesday prior would mean that I was pretty sick. So you can pray for Amy, and uh, we're going to work hard to get her scheduled to come back here. Uh, the worst news is that I got that call on Tuesday afternoon, and Monday is my sermon prep day. Uh, so I didn't think I was preaching on Monday. I did other stuff. And then I got a call on Tuesday that I am preaching. So what that means is I've had a short prep week. What that means even more specifically is that when I have a short prep week, what I tend to do is try to jam about six hours worth of content into about 40 minutes. So what we're going to do is compromise. And I'm going to preach for about two and a half hours. And we should be just fine. We should be just fine. So here's the deal. Uh, I would just encourage you this morning and let you know up uh, ahead in advance here that as we talk about the B-I-B-L-E, as we talk about the Bible this morning, um, you're going to get kind of hit with a fire hose of information. There is a lot of content jammed into uh, this sermon this morning. As I've said before, about 10 pounds of content in a five-pound bag. So uh, I, I, I would encourage you, try not to write, or don't try to write all these things down. I'll kind of hit the highlights for you to the best of my ability uh, so that you can jot these things down, take pictures, however you record this stuff. And, and then the other thing I would encourage you to do is, is dial your brain in. Because if you check out for a couple minutes, you'll be totally lost. It's like watching Sixth Sense or something like that. You're going to be completely lost. So don't check your phone. Don't post on your MySpace or whatever it is you kids do these days or whatever it is. Don't, don't play words with friends or Candy Crush like I do. Stick with me here, all right, and force your brain. Be diligent, be disciplined, and dial in as we talk about the Bible this morning. We're going to start here with Richard Dawkins, who is a voice of and a face of uh, the new atheist movement, the modern atheist movement. Listen to what Richard Dawkins wrote about the Bible. When we said this last week, we quoted him, but it's a good jumping off point for us here this week that uh, the Bible, uh, Richard Dawkins says, is a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, revised, composed, translated, and distorted and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. And as I said last week, my favorite character from The Simpsons would read this quote and say, there are so many things wrong with that statement, I'm not sure which part to correct first. So what I want to do this morning is argue against Dawkins and try to correct one of those uh, points that he's making there. And there's a lot there that he's trying to say. But one of those points is that the, the Bible was chaotic cobbled together. It's an anthology of disjointed documents. So last week we answered this question, what is the Bible? And today we're going to answer this question, how did we get the Bible? How did we get the Bible? How did the Bible come to be? Because here's what we said last week. We said that the Bible is a library of God's promises. It's not a single book written by a single author. In fact, it's a collection of 66 books written by at least 40 authors over the course of 1600 centuries. And one might conclude, if you didn't do the research, you might conclude that it's a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents. In fact, it is not. It's a library that's got a 
a consistent common thread through it, and it was a very organized way in which the Bible came together. So if you're jotting down notes, jot this question down, how did we get the Bible? Because this is the critical question for us this morning, and this is what we're going to try to answer. Theologians, scholars, and Bible people have this word that they use, and it's the canon. So when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about the list of books that belong in the Bible. And this word canon comes from uh, the, the Greek uh, or Latin as well, uh, meaning rule or measuring stick. Rule or measuring stick. So here's what we're asking ourselves this morning. Which books measure up? Why did those 66, 39 in the old, and then whatever 66 minus 39 is in the New Testaments, why did they measure up? Why are they included? How did that list come together? So if you're jotting down notes, jot these three words down because this is the process by which the Bible came together. It's three words, decision, inspiration, and recognition. Decision, inspiration, and recognition. I want to give you an overall view of each of those, and then we're going to unpack what these words have to do with our discussion this morning as we go along. And the first thing is that God decided to communicate. God decided to communicate. God wasn't painted into a corner. He wasn't obligated. That wasn't a chore that he had to do. No one held a gun to his head. God decided to communicate. Then he inspired people to write that down to write his words down. Finally, the people of God, that's the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, the people of God recognized God's words to God's people. Those three steps, God's decision to communicate, his inspiration for people to write it down, and God's people recognizing God's words, those three steps apply to both the Old and New Testament. And those three steps are the reason why we have a canon of scripture, the reason why you can hold a book and go, these 66 books are inspired by God and authoritative for my life. So let's unpack it when it comes to both the Old and the New Testament. Let's just start here that God decided to speak. If you're jotting down notes, jot this down. God decided to speak. And let me just pause here. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Because nobody told him to do that. Nobody made him do that. You know why he did that? Because he loves you. Because he wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He wants to enfold his redemptive plan. In fact, in the first chapter of the Bible, very first chapter, Genesis chapter one, no less than 10 times, God speaks. And God said, what? Let there be light. And God said, let the heavens divide from the earth, waters divide on the earth and let land show up. And God said, and God spoke. And God said, let us create man in our own image. God speaks. And that was his decision. That was his choice in order to make himself known to us. Man, some of you, if you wanted to, you could just say amen and leave right now. That's all you needed to know today, that God decided to speak to you. Not because anything you did, but because he's awesome. God decided to speak. Then God inspired people to write those words down. God inspired people to write those words down. Now, write this down if you're taking notes. And I'm going to provide a lot of Old Testament uh, support for this statement right here. Don't try to write these verses down. If you do, let me just say it this way. 
God is not inspiring you to write these verses down, okay? Because there's just gonna be way too many of it. And as Dave Lewis told me in the first service, his daughter was trying to take notes and it was quite comical to watch her do all this down at the same time. So don't try to write these down. But I want you to see in the Old Testament that God inspired people to write this word, uh, write his words down. You know, the first time that God had something written down, it wasn't even someone that wrote it down, it was him, he himself wrote down his revelation to mankind. We find in Exodus when God, uh, Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, that when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, when God had finished speaking with Moses, uh, he gave him the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Isn't that cool? That the very first time God spoke and written revelation was written down, it was God who wrote them down. In other words, written revelation was God's idea. Written revelation was God's idea. Here's why this is important. Aren't you glad, again, that God chose a means by which to communicate that is not antiquated now? I mean, we can still read this. We can still get to know God. Let's put it this way. How many of you have a VCR at home that will play VHS tapes? Raise your hand. See, if God chose to speak through VHS tapes, you'd be the only people who knew God. The rest of us would be totally hosed, right? The rest of us would be up a creek without a paddle. But God decided to communicate via written revelation so that we can still hold that written revelation in our hand today in our literate culture. That's good news. And then check this out. Moses comes down the mountain with those tablets that were written by the very hand of God, comes down the mountain and he finds uh, Aaron and the nation of Israel have melted down all of their jewelry. It's just such a stupid idea. I just want to talk about this for a little while, even though I can't, I don't have time. Okay, such a stupid idea. Melt down all their jewelry, they make a golden calf, and they're worshiping a golden calf. And Moses gets mad and he goes, blam! And he throws the tablets of stone down and breaks what God had written with his very hand. Nichols worth of free advice this morning. If God ever gives you anything that he has written personally, don't throw it down and break it. But God, in his grace and mercy, replaced those tablets of stone. Look at Exodus. It says that God, uh, Moses went back up the mountain, met with God. God revealed himself to Moses. He decided to speak. And Moses wrote on the tablets of the stone the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. See, this happens all throughout the Old Testament. Again, the Lord said to Moses in Exodus, write this as a memorial in a book. And Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. Keep going. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage stage by command of the Lord. God inspired my, Moses to write a song and not just kind of create and make up a song, but literally physically write it down. Joshua did the same thing. He wrote these words that God uh, revealed to him in the book of the law of God. We find in the Chronicles, in the history of God's people, that the acts of King David are written in the Chronicles. Next verse, the acts of Jehoshaphat are written in the Chronicles. God starts to reveal himself and speak to the prophets and he tells the prophets, Samuel, as a matter of fact, to write these things down in a book. He commands Jeremiah, write these things down in a book, all the words I have spoken to you. In other words, what we find from the Old Testament is this, that God inspired people to write. God inspired them to write. He didn't just speak to them, he inspired them to write those things down. Now, I'm going to do a little tangent here and deal with a quick Bible difficulty that some of you may be wondering about. We would affirm that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. However, there are some things that happen in those books that Moses wasn't there to see. Namely, the stuff that happened 
after he died. Those are written in the first five books. Moses wasn't there to see that stuff. Like Moses' last words are in there. Could you imagine like if you were dying and you had to write these things down, you were inspired by God to write these things down and you wrote your last words and then you lived for like another six weeks or six months or something. Somebody came in like, hey, can I get you something to eat? And you're going, because I've already been inspired to write my last words down and those things are be strong and courageous so I can't speak anymore. See, that's probably not how it worked. And some may say that, you know, with Adam and Eve and the creation of first man and first woman, Moses wasn't there for that. That's correct. Moses wasn't there for that. And so God likely revealed to him in a dream or revealed to him in a vision. Maybe, maybe that's the case. I would contend that the likelihood is what happened prior to Moses, much of what happened prior to Moses was in a pre-literate culture. There was no written language. And so stories were passed down, how? Verbally, right? Orally. People told each other stories. Not all of your family stories are written down in any book anywhere, for good reason, by the way, okay? Not all of your family stories. You pass them down verbally. Same thing. So when Moses got these stories about what God had done through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all this stuff, he began to write them down because he was inspired of God to do so. And then the things that happened subsequent to his death, likely written down by Joshua. But those first five books encapsulate God's beginnings and Moses was the one who kind of put them together by and large for the most part. Same thing happens uh, with Jeremiah. Jeremiah or the other prophets even. You might go, is, is all the chapters of Jeremiah, did Jeremiah literally write those down? Quite likely, quite probably, Jeremiah wrote those down because God commanded to write those things down in a book. But listen, Jeremiah's primary role as a prophet of God was not to cloister himself in a room and just write a bunch of stuff down, right? I, I, you know, the nation of Israel has, has left the covenant of God. I will tear them apart with my vicious rhetoric. You know, I'm going to write them a nasty letter. That's not what Jeremiah was called to do. Here's what Jeremiah was called to do. He was called to come to the nation of Israel to stand up on his pedestal. I might die here. So I hope they have the video from the first service. All right. So stand up on his pedestal and say, nation of Israel, you've left the covenant of God. Come back. God has good things for you. You're acting like morons in Babylon. Don't act like that. Seek the welfare of the city into which I've called you into exile. God has good things for you, plans for you. That's what Jeremiah was called to do. So likely Jeremiah wrote the entire book that's attributed to him, but there may have been close confidants of Jeremiah, disciples of Jeremiah that helped compile those things together and inscribe, write down that which Jeremiah had spoken. But what we can be sure of is that the prophecy of Jeremiah, and we're going to talk about why we can trust the Bible in coming weeks, prophecy of Jeremiah were Jeremiah's words, more specifically, God's words to the nation of Israel and to us through Jeremiah. What we can conclude from the Old Testament is simply this, uh, that God decided to speak and then God inspired people to write. All through the Old Testament, we see that all over the place that God inspired people to write. And then finally, if you're jotting down notes, jot this down, that God's people recognized God's words. God's people recognized God's words or God's voice and began to compile those books, the books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the book of the law, the books of history, 
the books of prophecy, the books of wisdom, they begin to recognize those. And by the fifth century BC, the Old Testament was put together in its current form. And the form that we have it now, Genesis through Malachi. Malachi spoke and Malachi was a prophet in the fifth century BC. And God's people had recognized God's words. Now, again, a tangent because some of you may be asking this question. Well, aren't there some other books that are maybe included in the Old Testament that we don't have in the Protestant church, but they have in the Catholic church, like Judith and Maccabees and Tobit? Anybody heard of these books before? Okay, so why aren't those recognized as God's words to God's people by the Protestant church? I'm going to give you three reasons why, and then I'm going to tell you why history affirms these three reasons. The three reasons why those books, those were called the Apocrypha. Anybody heard that word before? Or even Deuterocanonical books. If you've never heard these words before, don't panic. You're like, what in the world is going on? I just want to address it for those who are wondering about that. First of all, those books are not cited in the New Testament. They're not cited in the New Testament. They're cited and alluded to a couple of times, and they're a little problematic, and they're a little you know, we're not quite sure. There's still some contention. But what we do know about the New Testament is that it cites the books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, that we have in the Protestant church over 300 times, direct quotes, direct quotes. And it, the New Testament alludes to those books of the Old Testament that we have in the Protestant church, alludes to them over 3,000 times. See, those books are cited, but the books of the Apocrypha, the Deuterocanonical books, are not. Second, those Deuterocanonical books are not consistent. The books of the Apocrypha are not consistent with Orthodox biblical teaching. So you're going, okay, so if they're not consistent with teaching, who put them in to begin with? Well, here's what happened. Around the 16th century, Martin Luther started to speak up. You may have heard a story about Martin Luther. And he started to speak up against the church and he said, man, I'm reading the Bible and I can't find this purgatory thing anywhere. Or I'm reading the Bible, I can't find this penance thing anywhere. Or I can't find these prayers for the dead anywhere. Now listen, I'm not knocking my Catholic brothers and sisters. I've got friends that are Catholic and they're brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not knocking them. I'm just telling you why I disagree with them and think they're dead wrong. That's, that's beside the point. Because I love them. I love them very, very much. We're close, all right? But I'm just saying this is where we differ. So Martin Luther comes on the scene and he says, you know what? This stuff is wacky. This is not in the Bible. And here's how the church responded. They said, okay, so what we're going to do is add these extra books to the Old Testament. That's the Apocrypha. For example, Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, others. So those books of the Apocrypha, just so you know, are not listed in any list of the canon until 1546. They're not listed in early lists because it was a response to Martin Luther. And we thank Martin Luther for the, uh, in a lot of ways for the doctrine that we teach today. Those books are not consistent with Orthodox teaching. And I've already alluded to this, but they're not listed in the earliest list of the canon. They're not included. When we talk about the Old Testament canon, we have very, very early lists. And that Apocrypha, those deuterocanonical books, are not included. See, they're not cited, they're not consistent with teaching, and they're not included in our earliest list. Now, the second thing I want to tell you is that early Jewish history, extra-biblical texts, texts that are not in the Old Testament, would affirm the very same thing. Three examples, don't write them down. Three examples are the Maccabees 
and the Babylonian Talmud and Josephus, a historian. The Maccabees happened about two centuries before Christ came along. It was a group of Jews that were under attack and miraculously were saved by God. And somebody decided to write down that history and write down what happened. But you know the person who wrote Maccabees? You know what they also wrote in the book of Maccabees? That God's voice stopped with Malachi in the 5th century BC, 500 years before Jesus. And this didn't happen until 200 years before Jesus. So it's funny, people say, well, the Maccabees should belong in in the scripture. The Maccabees belong in the canon. And the author of the Maccabees is saying, no, I don't. (laughs) I'm just writing history. God's voice stopped long ago, but I don't belong in there. Same thing with the Babylonian Talmud written in about the second century and Josephus writing in uh, the end of the first century, both Jewish texts that would say, the canon of the Old Testament was complete at Malachi in about 450 BC. Hence the reason we would affirm that Genesis through Malachi in that book that you, that those, uh, the Bible that you have in front of you, let me list the books just real quick, just so you know which they are. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Bacchus, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. <gasps> don't clap. I was brainwashed as a kid, right? All right, so don't, that's, that's not something to clap for. Okay, so that's why we would affirm that those books and those books alone belong in the list of the books that belong in the scripture. The canon, those are the ones that measure up in the Old Testament because they're not cited, they're not included, and they're not Uh, consistent with orthodox biblical teaching. Not only that, not only that, but but here's, here's what's more important. Because Jesus is the center of our faith in the Christian church, Jesus affirms the Old Testament. If we say God's people recognize God's voice, Jesus in particular recognized God's voice specifically in the Old Testament. And I want to tell you what Jesus has to say about the Old Testament. In a couple weeks, Dwayne Klein, a friend of ours from um, a church at Houston Street Baptist Church, is going to be here talking about what Jesus had to say about the Bible. So I'm not going to steal his thunder this morning. I just want to point out one quick thing that Jesus says about the Old Testament. Look what Jesus says. He says, truly I say to you, and he's talking about Genesis through Malachi, all those books I just named, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. See how he's affirming the Old Testament there? Look how much he's affirming the Old Testament. These words in the King James Version are translated jot and tittle. And I don't tell you that just so I can say jot and tittle a bunch of times in church and make everybody uncomfortable. I tell you that because the translation of iota and dot or jot and tittle is actually not a Hebrew letter, but an even smaller Hebrew character. It's like an accent mark. It's not even a letter. See, this is what Jesus is saying in modern language. Watch this. Not the dot of an I nor the cross of a T will disappear. Jesus is recognizing God's voice in the Old Testament. Pretty cool, right? Now watch, Paul does the same. He says, all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're gonna go on another tangent just real quick and we'll come back to it, but here's the tangent. Does everybody know this is our memory verse for this entire series? We're trying to memorize this verse. Okay, one, two, three, change the slide. 
All right, now you gotta say it, don't you? Now you gotta say it. Now everybody's panicked, sweating. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. All right, say it with me. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Just make a mental note, there will be more of those words removed from the verse next week, okay? So you need to get to memorizing. Off of our tangent, let's look at what Paul is saying here. Paul is using this word scripture. He says all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God. And what he's talking about is specifically the Old Testament. Was Paul self-reflective here? Was he self-attesting? Did he know he was writing scripture? I don't, I'm not even dealing with that question right now. I'm not dealing with, I'm talking about what is Paul saying about the Old Testament? Because this word scripture is used 51 times in the New Testament and all 51 times it's translated this word graphe. Graphe in the Greek, that's a transliteration of the Greek. And it's a very, very technical term. It's not kind of a God's words to us or just kind of a general revelation of God. It's a specific term talking about specifically the Old Testament. So not only only does Jesus say not a jot or a tittle, not an iota, not a dot, not a cross of a T or a dot of an I will disappear from the law. Paul is saying all of those books, 39 of the Old Testament, everybody knew what he'd be talking about because those have been codified for hundreds of years by the time Paul is writing. He says that all of it is God breathed. Next slide. He says that uh, God has decided. God, next slide. Sorry. He says all scripture the Old Testament is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul himself recognizes God's voice in the Old Testament. So again, here's the three steps. God decided, God decided, next slide, to communicate. Go back, go back one. God decided to communicate. He inspired people to write it down and God's people recognized God's voice. Now we've applied those three steps to the Old Testament. You got it? Now let's apply them to the new, to the New Testament. God decided to speak. I love how the beginning uh, or how Hebrews starts. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes, a long time ago, God spoke through our fathers and through the prophets. But in his, these last days, God has spoken through his son, Jesus. God decided to speak. God decided to send his word incarnate in Christ. Again, under no compulsion to do so, no obligation, it wasn't a chore. He did it because he loved you and in his sovereignty decided he wanted to reveal himself to you. Let's do it one more time. Aren't you glad? I'm glad too. God decided to speak. Then God inspired people to write it down. God inspired people to write it down. So let's revisit our memory verse for this series. When Paul says all scripture is God breathed, many theologians, many Bible scholars, not all, but many would say that he knows what he's talking about here. He knows what he's talking about. He knows he's talking about himself. But let's go even a step further. Remember that this word scripture and that it's God breathed means the Old Testament, right? That's the technical term. It means the Old Testament. So listen really closely. Um, what, what, sorry, we'll get there in a minute. So 
so God is inspiring Paul. God is breathing out his words through Paul. And, and he's also inspiring other authors to write at the same time. Namely, a guy named Luke, just by way of example. Not me, Luke. I've told you that before. Not me, Luke, but another Luke 2,000 years ago. One of my favorite uh, uh, books in all the scripture. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke writes this. He says, it seemed good to me also. Having followed all the things. He said, look, you've, you've, you've read a lot of other accounts of Jesus because all the other gospels were being circulated by this time, so, uh, except for John. So it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. You see how God's inspiring him to write? For you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, here, here's what I want you to know about inspiration and specifically inspiration for, for Luke. Uh, we sometimes think about God inspiring people or God speaking his word and we think about like their marionette puppet, you know? Like God is controlling their hand somehow with a string and writing down words. Or God is speaking to them and he, they're like dictate, you know, they're like a court stenographer writing it down like this in every verbatim word for word. And see, that's not what Luke is saying. Look what he's saying. He says, seem good to me to write it down. Seem good to me. So think about it this way. Think about a ship with sails that's out on the ocean and the spirit of God begins to blow through those sails and moves that ship forward. In the same way, God's wind kind of blew through uh, these authors of scripture and moved them to write these things down. In other words, what we're affirming about the New Testament as well is that God inspired people to write God inspired people to write. And then our third step is that the church or God's people recognized God's words. The church recognized God's words. Now, I want to show you something that absolutely blows my mind in the scripture because so many people might tell you that, oh yeah, you know, the authors of scripture, you know, they were writing that stuff, but it wasn't until several hundred years after the fact that people said, oh yeah, those are the words of God and we need to write them down. It wasn't until, you know, two, three, four hundred years even after them writing. No, 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 no. Check this out. Let's, let's watch again what's, what's happening here. So listen to Peter talk about Paul. Are you ready? Ready? Peter talking about Paul. He says, count on the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote. So he's talking about what Paul has written. He's not talking about Old Testament, right? You with me? He says, Paul also wrote. I told you to dial it in this morning. All right, no Instagram. Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, which he uh, speaks in them of these matters. Next slide. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Can anybody just amen that for a minute? You ever read the letters of Paul and go, this is hard to understand. Even Peter's like, sometimes I don't get it, all right? So you're in good company, all right? Keep going. So some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, that happens too, as they do the other what? Scriptures. Remember, this is a very technical term, isn't it? It's talking about the Old Testament. But Peter is talking about Paul's writings and the Old Testament at the same time. And he says the what? The other scriptures. The other scriptures. Peter is saying what Paul is writing to you needs to be included with that inspired authoritative word of God. Are you with me? Are you listening? Okay, good. Now watch this. Watch Paul acknowledge Luke. This is amazing. 
This is amazing. If, if you weren't looking for this, you might just read over and go, oh, I don't know, okay. This is also one of my favorite verses because it's, it's, it's the defense as to why pastors should get paid, but beside the point. Okay, so 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul writes this. He says, for the scripture says, what's this word? Come on now. It's graphe, it's a technical term, right? So scripture's the Old Testament. The scripture says, authoritative inspired word of God, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you might read that and go, it's, most of you don't know it, at least not this well. I certainly don't know it necessarily this well. But you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Deuteronomy. I got that. Early Jewish readers of Paul's letters, go, yeah, that's Deuteronomy. I got that. Okay, that's the scripture. I got that. And, and the scripture also says the laborer deserves his wages. And so if you're an early Jewish reader of the text, you go, where the name of thunder is that? I mean, I've read the whole darn thing, all 39 books over and over. I can't find that anywhere. You know why? Because it ain't there. But you know where it is? Look at Luke 10, verse 7. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking for what they provide. For what? The laborer deserves his wages. See, Paul is quoting Luke. And he says, the scripture says. Quote from Deuteronomy and a quote from Luke. Let me tell you something. When we start talking about the church recognizing God's words, that didn't happen three or 400 years down the road. That was happening the minute these authors were writing the scripture. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? So then after the fact, as these books grew and became authoritative in the church, they were, begin, they were beginning to be circulated among the churches and read among the churches. Someone, not sure who, but someone started to go, maybe we should write down which ones belong. Because there's some stuff out there that doesn't belong. I'm, I, I've read it. It's weird, right? It doesn't belong. So, so what are we going to do? How, what, what's our measuring stick for the New Testament, the church would say, right? So here are the four things that they looked for when it came to canonization or listing the books that belonged in that authoritative inspired word of God. Write these four things down. You ready? First thing they look for is conformity. Conformity. Does this letter, does this gospel, does this prophetic book, does this book of history conform to the Old Testament? Does it conform to the teachings of Jesus? And remember, when they started asking these questions, there were people in the room going, hey, you guys get I'm his brother, right? Like, I'm his brother. I'm pretty sure that doesn't conform to the teaching of Jesus. Or I'm pretty sure that that does. Or guys in the room, like Peter and John, going, I'm his best friend. I mean, he's gone now, but I was and, and, and still am, although he's ascended into heaven. Like, that doesn't conform. So let me give you one example of a book that some, some people might say, this should go in the scripture. You remember the whole Dan Brown Da Vinci Code craziness years ago? Remember that whole deal? Like, oh, there's a bunch of lost gospels. There's no lost gospels. They're all found. Okay, that's number one. Number two, there was this whole, well, are these the other things that should belong in the scripture? I'm going to give you one example of a book that does not belong that people might say, and it's called the Gospel of Thomas. Have you ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Okay, Gospel of Thomas is not in the Bible. It's not authoritative and it's not inspired because it does not conform with the teachings of the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus. So here's why we know it doesn't conform. Look up here on the screen. Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us for women are not worthy of life. Okay, well, like if you're reading that, you're going, well, that doesn't conform, right? I mean, Jesus, Jesus was so kind to women. He was countercultural when it came to his treatment of women. So for somebody to say women are not worthy of life, 
well, that's silly. That doesn't conform. That's straight from the Gospel of Thomas, not included in the Scripture. Now, I'm going to give Peter a pass here, okay? Because Peter says dumb stuff all the time, and it's included in the Scripture. Peter's wacko, so maybe he's just saying something stupid. So what I really want to know is what's Jesus' response? And here's what the Gospel of Thomas would say that Jesus' response is. Lo, I shall lead her, and I make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. How many of you do not have an advanced degree in theology? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Come on. Come on. And how many of you can tell already, that doesn't conform to the teachings of Jesus in Scripture. That's not complicated, right? And in the Shepherd of Hermas and in other texts like that, there's some helpful historical things in there, but there's some things in there that we know do not conform. Just a side note here, Thomas did not write the Gospel of Thomas. It just comes by that name, but that is not included in the Scripture. Why? Because there is no conformity. It does not conform to the teachings of Scripture. Second, write this down. They're looking for apostolicity. Apostolicity. I like to say this word like a Southern Baptist preacher. Apostolicite. I just like to say it like that. I don't know why. So what it means is, what the early church was looking for is, did an apostle, a close friend and follower of Jesus, write this book? Or did someone very, very close to an apostle write this book, letter, whatever? Okay? So in the New Testament, all but four books were written by apostles. Look up here on the screen. Matthew wrote his gospel. John wrote his gospel, three letters and revelation. Peter wrote two letters. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter. And Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter. (laughs) I mean, listen, guys. Just let that blow your mind. These are half-brothers of Jesus. Jesus uh, uh, miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit through Mary, but then Mary and Joseph had kids after that. These guys. And they're writing letters. And they're like, Jesus is God. Wow, cool, right? That's cool. All right, and then Paul, an apostle of Jesus, wrote 13 letters. The four books in the New Testament that were not written by apostles are these. Mark did not write his gospel, but he was a very, very close friend of Peter's, and his was the first gospel to be written. So Peter would have still been alive to say, "Uh, Mark, that's stupid, take that out. (laughs) Or Mark, I didn't say that, buddy. You know full well I didn't say that. In fact, it was probably more like this, Mark writing this gospel down and Peter going, oh yeah, man, that's what happened. Yep, I denied him, that's what happened. Yeah, and he loved me, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Luke, he was a close confidant of Paul and he wrote the gospel of Luke and Acts. Thoroughly researched this and thoroughly researched that and that was his apostolic connection. Now Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that one. Now watch this, I might blow somebody's mind this morning. You ready? Ready? Some say Paul. Some say Apollos. Uh, some say Barnabas wrote Hebrews. If you don't familiar with these names, it's not that big a deal. What if, what if, buckle up. Ready? Buckle up. What if it wasn't a he at all? What if it was a she? Could you imagine? Check this out. Just, 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 just. Stick with me for a minute. Look, I'll even go further over here so nobody panics, right? If he's on the side of the stage, it makes me feel more comfortable. Okay, so here's how Hebrews begins. A long time ago, God spoke through prophets and his fathers. But in these recent days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. And Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, the greatest priest. Jesus is greater than any angel. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater. And if you read Hebrews, you see the glory of God and the splendor of God on display. Watch this, watch this. What if that was his mom? 
Whoa. Okay, we don't know. But Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, meets all the other qualifications. One of them is Catholicity. Catholicity. And what I mean by Catholicity is not Catholic church like big C. What I mean is lowercase c, universal, wide acceptance in the early church by the church fathers and in the first century church. So let me give you four examples of people that accepted Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament canon. Justin Martyr, in the very beginning of the second century, right around 100 AD, would affirm that these letters Letters, books, gospels were read in church assemblies. Irenaeus would confirm that he, the, those things were read. He actually included a list of the canon that included all but four books that we have in our current canon. Uh, the Muratorian canon, which came around about, was written about 180 AD. Very first list of the New Testament books we have uh, would include all but four of the books. And then Athanasius in 367 AD canonized or wrote down down the list of the New Testament books that belong in the canon, and it's our current list today. Now, check this out, and I want to be really, really clear. What we're talking about is wide acceptance, universal acceptance, Catholicity of the New Testament. I want to be really, really clear that Sir Isaac Newton did not create gravity. You with me? It was there. And then he just went, well, let me write some stuff down about that. In the same way, the authors of the Gospels did not create Jesus. They just observed him and wrote some things down. And in the same way, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus in the Muratorian canon and, and Athanasius in 367 did not say, I'm going to make a list of books that you need to obey and follow. What they did was said, the whole church is obeying and following these books. Let's just make a list quick, shall we? Let's make a list. Catholicity universal acceptance. These books do not have authority because they're written down. They're written down because they have authority. Are you with me? Okay, fourth, here we go. Last thing is that they're looking for proximity, proximity. Any gospel or any other letter that you might hear about or read about, should that be included in scriptures? Should that be included in the scripture? Was likely written a hundred years or more after Jesus and the apostles were gone from the planet. So most of the New Testament many scholars argue that it was completed at least in draft form before 70 AD. I don't want to get into the reasons why, but at the very least, it was completed by 90 AD. So if you read about the Shepherd of Hermas, which is a text, or the Gospel of Thomas, somebody says that should be in or that should be in, those things weren't written until 100 to 150, even 200 years after Jesus and the apostles were gone. It wasn't proximity in terms of geography, but proximity in terms of chronology. They weren't close to Jesus. Jesus. There were no living witnesses that would say yes or no on that. So those were excluded from the canon. What I'm telling you is this, that the church recognized God's words. The church recognized God's words to God's people. So here's what we have. We have 66 books in that Bible that you hold that are authoritative and inspired and affirmed by the church. And I want to end with an illustration here that I'm hoping uh, will be helpful. And in terms, I know that this has been a very kind of scholastic sermon and a very university kind of sermon, and I get that. But, but here's, here's the one that I want you to be moved by in your heart. And I hope this moves you. Answer this question out loud. You ready? What is this a picture of? Jesus. 
Come on now, it's the what? Sun. Okay, next one. What is this a picture of? Sun. You know what mountain that is? It's Kilimanjaro. Okay, next one. What's this a picture of? Sun. Yeah, that's Fuji. Okay, next one. What's this a picture of? It's the same one, same thing. What is it? You want to know the significance of this picture of the sun? Very first picture of the sun that was ever taken. Before this, we didn't have pictures. They, this was the very first picture of the sun. Next picture. What's it a picture of? The sun. Yeah. Next one. What's it a picture of? I mean, it's an eclipse, but what do you know is behind there? The sun. Next picture. It's a picture of what? The greatest city in the world. And, and what? The sun. Back here. So here's the thing. No matter when those pictures were taken, no matter where they were taken, no matter who took them, uh, was it sunrise or sunset? Was it Fuji or Kilimanjaro? Was it Toronto? Was the sun uh, eclipsed by the moon? Was it the very first picture of the sun taken to where I can't totally tell where it is, what it is, but now that you tell me, oh yeah, I see it, I see it, yeah, that's the sun. Or was it a very recent picture of the sun taken? In every case, you look at it and you go, I know that's the sun. I know that's the sun. 66 books of the scripture. You read them, and what you'll see is the glory of God on display. No matter when they were written, sometimes the glory of God is eclipsed by sin. Sometimes the glory of God is rising in someone's life for the very first time, like John the Baptist and Samuel. We hear of their young prophetic words. Sometimes the glory of God is setting on someone's life, like Moses when he died, or even like Jesus when he died, and yet we see the glory of God. Sometimes we have very early pictures of the gospel and the glory of God, like in Genesis. Sometimes we have very recent pictures, like the gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes we have pictures down the road, like Revelation. But in every case, in 66 books, you can read it and go, that's the sun. I know that's the sun. And I'm not going to do the S-O-N, capital S, all that stuff, because that's silly and weird, okay? It's a stupid joke. I'm not going to do that joke. Here's the deal. Here's what you need to know, that when we read the scripture, we see the glory of God on display. Sometimes it's obscured. Sometimes it shines brightly. Sometimes it's rising. Sometimes it's setting. But that's the common thread through every single book of the canon of scripture, and that is how the Bible came to be. So, against Dawkins... Is the Bible truly a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries? Well, of course not. We just proved it this morning. Say it with me. Here's what we would affirm, that all Scripture is what? God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's stand as we close in song.